we will get some spiritual food and then we'll get some Aljana food too. Okay, I want to tell you about um, officers in a small town in Texas at the Granite Shoals Police Department that had an ingenious idea of how to catch the county's dumbest drug users. So this is what they did. They posted a fake Facebook story about drugs that were tainted with the Ebola virus. And so they posted this warning. If you have recently purchased meth or heroin in central Texas, please take it to the local police so that it can be screened with a special device. Do not use it until it has been properly checked for possible Ebola contamination. Now, obviously, it's a plot and it's a ploy to try and catch our dumb drug users. Did anyone fall for it? Well, yes, they did. Chastity Eugenia Hobson came forward to the police immediately with the illegal drugs that she had in her possession, afraid that it could be dangerous, because drugs aren't dangerous otherwise. She was charged with possession, spent some time in jail, and, of course, made the list of dumbest criminals ever. Other dumb criminals? Well, this, for, uh, this Florida man used his wanted pick for a Facebook profile. He was caught. I don't have a picture for this, but another guy who uh, was, uh, he was robbing a store and the manager wasn't there, and so therefore he couldn't get into the safe, so he left his phone number with the cashier to tell them to call him back when the manager came back. Obviously, they caught him. And then my favorite is these guys who uh, didn't have balaclavas, so they had the ingenious idea of getting permanent marker and coloring their face. And it meant that the police could identify them pretty easily because the marker wouldn't wash off, and that's their mugshots when they caught him, caught the, <laughs> caught the guys. Okay, dumb criminals. Why am I telling you about dumb criminals? Well, these chapters, Numbers 23, 2, 23, 24, and we'll look at all three chapters, it actually reads a little bit like the Bible's version of dumb criminals. Really, it does. And some of you may have looked at parts of it for a community group this week. We actually have, we've been looking at numbers so far, and it's usually been about Israel, the people of God, and Moses, their leader. Well, actually, now Israel and Moses fade into the background, don't they? And we actually see the story of these three chapters play out between some new characters. An enemy king, Balak, and his hired magician, or seer, or prophet, um, master of the dark arts, whatever you want to call him. His name is Balaam. Okay, so you've got King Balak and Balaam, and we've even got just for show, just for fun, a talking donkey as well. And this is what these chapters are about. It's deliberately funny. Right? God has a sense of humor, and it's in the Bible. It's deliberately humorous because the plans of this dumb king and his dumb prophet would be turned upside down even by a dumb animal who manages to talk. This is Numbers 22 to 24. It's the Bible's version of dumb criminals. Now, you might be wondering, though, okay, this is all very interesting, but why three whole chapters? Because this is quite a long section in the book of Numbers. This is probably the longest single continuous section in the book so far. Why three long chapters? Well, we're going to get to the end and we're going to realize that these chapters will make the unmistakable point, and this is something that we need to hear tonight as well, that God is 100% completely in control. He really is. And nothing can stop his plans, especially his plans to bless his people. And that includes you and me if you are a follower of Jesus. All right, that's the big message of today. God will win, he will bless, and nothing can stop that. But we're going to dip in and have a look at how it's played out. So why don't we pray, and then we'll get into it. Father God, thank you for your word. 
even as we approach an amusing, interesting part of the, the Bible, help us to see deeper than what's on the surface so that we can hear you speak to us, we can meet you, and we can be changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I've got some points on your outlines, if you've got paper ones, or on Zach Pages, that digital bulletin. But three is really the special number today, okay? Three is the special number. I feel like that Sesame Street count guy. Number three, a one, a two. Is he still around? Anyway, um, three is a special number. So when you notice pe- uh, threes coming together in, this, uh, in these chapters, is really, uh, really important. Because we're going to have a, a, a basically three parts, right, to, these, to this story. And that's point number one on your outlines. But each part will have also their own series of three. Okay, so you'll notice that. Firstly, um, we read it earlier, but Numbers 22, um, we open with the king of Moab. Remember, his name is Balak. And he's putting together, what, a plan so that he can have a better chance against a rising threat. Now, a bit of context, because we've been going through Numbers for a number of weeks now. We've now hit the point 40 years later. We looked at that last week. It's 40 years later. It's a new generation. The old generation's died out. The new generation uh, have come up, and they're about to step in and finally go into the land that God had promised to give them, Canaan, the promised land. Now, the chapter before, which we didn't look at last week, Numbers 21, begins with a victory and ends with two other military victories. It's really a chapter full of military victories on Israel's behalf, which is amazing because Israel is... You know, these people were sons and daughters of ex-slaves. They really had no military background. And yet, because God was with them, they completely wipe out their enemies who came and attacked them. And so you got chapter 22 opening. And you see there that as God had promised, even though they had no military training, no military background, He would put the dread and fear of His people in the hearts of the natives and the people of the land. And that's exactly what's happening. Because Moab, this country on the south, right, on the edge of the promised land, is freaked out. King Balak of Moab, as he looks out, he can see two million, possibly two million people camped out, about to sweep into the land, 600,000 fighting men. And he is absolutely freaked out. He sees almost like a swarm of locusts. That is about to devour. He sees that they're like, in verse 4, he calls them um, like ox, like cows, licking up the grass. And I don't know if you've actually seen cows do this. I've seen cows do this when they eat. Their tongues are amazing. They lick and then the the grass gets swept up in their mouth and just keep doing it. It's like that. And he sees the cows do that to the grass. And it's like Israel about to do that to all the nations, um, including his own. So he's completely freaked out. And so he knows, look, I've got no chance in direct battle with this horde. So I'm going to try cheating. And what he does here, I think, is like the ancient version of doping in sport. Okay, he thought, well, I'm going to cheat. How am I going to cheat? In their worldview, it's a bit like Harry Potter, okay? It's a bit like Harry Potter, but it's darker and it's real. And in their worldview and in their time, there were people who could access the demonic and spiritual world. Uh, and there would be magicians or sometimes called diviners or seers, sometimes even called prophets, although mostly the word prophet is used for the true prophets. But these are not worshippers of God. These are people from other lands, and they would use essentially the dark arts to find out stuff from the spiritual world and, again, a little bit like Harry Potter, be able to curse and hex the enemies. Now, some of you would be like, this is just 
make-believe, right? Harry Potter, this kind of stuff, does this actually exist? I don't have time to go into that now, but the Bible does picture that there is a spiritual world, not just of good where God is in control, but of evil where Satan is in control, okay? And these things are real, and if you come from traditional cultures, um, a lot of places in Asia, Africa, South America, these things are still very real, the spirit world, um, the demonic. And this is the world uh, that they occupied, and so comes along. Uh, so he comes along to find uh, basically his champion, and his champion is a guy called Balaam, uh, not from Moab, from the Far East, and he was the most famous hexer of his time. In fact, we actually have a historical, non-biblical reference to Balaam. This is how you know the Bible is actually real. Right? These people didn't just make this up. Balaam's name is mentioned by a non-biblical ancient Near Eastern source. And this guy was so famous that he was mentioned by another uh, source, not in the Bible. And so I think he was like the Lord Voldemort of his time. He was the guy, the guy you would call, the guy you would hire. So Balak gets ready to woo Balaam to help his cause so that he can cheat and try and get his odds stacked in his favor. Now, as I said, there's, there's threes, right? So you've got three meetings between Balak and his representatives and Balaam. The first meeting, and we won't go through this in detail because we already read it. Firstly, he sends messengers, yeah? And Balaam says to the messengers, you've got to wait because I'm going to try and divine through his dark arts a message from God. He eventually gets a message from God, and God tells him not to go. Why? Because even though Balak, the king, wanted Balaam to curse, and even though Balaam, as the Lord Voldemort of his time, was so good at it that Balak is saying, look, You've got 100% success rate. If you curse, they'll get cursed. If you bless, they'll get blessed. God, however, tells Balaam, no, you can't curse these people, verse 12, because I've decided to bless them. And so Balaam obediently says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go with you. That's meeting number one. But Balak doesn't give up, so he sends other people in verse 15. And this time he's trying, not just with messengers, um, the word there is princes, probably not literally princes, but high officials, essentially, okay? High officials, so to be like, okay, the first time he sends his diplomats, this time he's sending the deputy prime minister with the foreign minister, okay? He's going with the highest officials to go and woo Balaam. And this time it's wooing him with large amounts of money. He gives them a big dangling carrot. If you come, I'm going to make you rich. Whatever you want, it's going to be yours. Now again, Balaam waits another night. He waits for God to speak to him, and God does appear to him again. In verse 20, this time something different. God says to him, go with the men, but only do what I tell you to do. So that's the second meeting, and we read up to that. Now, before the third meeting, which will happen at the end of the chapter, we're going to cut to the second scene. And as I said, there's another set of threes. And that's where we're going to pick up. So if you have your Bibles open, please keep it open to Numbers 22, because we're going to read a little bit more than we read earlier. So next morning, Balaam, he gets ready to leave because God has effectively given him permission to. And this is what we read. Verse 21, we'll pick it up again. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Now, most people, including me, when you first read this, you're like, huh, what just happened? Like, didn't God say, go with them? And now God is angry for him going with them? Now, we don't get the answer directly. And maybe in community groups, you had a big debate about why God is angry with him. 
But here is how it works. Um, the Old Testament uh, is using different conventions because it's written in Hebrew and it's written to a different culture. And in their kind of narrative, not everything is spelt out. In fact, a lot of the answers are in the silences. So we've got to look in the silences for possibly the reason why. You might notice that the next morning after Balaam gets the message this time, he doesn't verbally say what God had told him, which he did after the first message. Remember, God said, don't go because I cannot, you, you know, I, and, and actually after the first uh, message from God, he actually tells the officials, I can't go with you. He doesn't do that the next morning. So there's a good chance that what this is saying is somehow overnight and in the morning as he decides to go off with the officials, something has possibly changed in his mind or his motivations. Maybe he thought, look, I'm going to make up my mind as I go. That big carrot, that big financial reward is pretty tempting. So maybe I'll go along and see how it plays out. Or maybe I can pull a quickie and fool God. And I can actually end up pretty rich myself. I'll go along with them. God's given me permission. But maybe I can make a quick buck along the way. So I reckon what's happened is he hasn't been fully convinced that he would go and completely obey God. This just gave him the reason to go and possibly make some money. Now, how I also know this is because Balaam is referred to a few other times in the Bible, never in a good way. And we'll look at that a bit later. But all the way at the end of the Bible, right, near the, really near the back of the Bible, a little book called Jude. And Jude is such a small little book in the Bible that it doesn't even have chapter numbers. It's only got one chapter. Um, we won't look it up, but Jude verse 11 actually tells us that Balaam's mistake or error was that he rushed for profit. So the New Testament confirms for us that Balaam had in his mind probably here a profit motive, and that's why God was there to oppose him. So how does God oppose him? Well, here is where the funny stuff actually starts. So what I'm going to do, I'm not going to tell you the story. I'm going to let the Bible tell you the story. So I'm going to read it out from, uh, pick it up from where we left off. If you've got your Bibles, keep it open, have a look with me. Or if you just like to listen, it's pretty good. It's pretty good to listen to as well. So let's pick it up. Um, Balaam was riding his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it laid down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, Oh my goodness, you're talking. <laughs> if I was writing it, that's what I would have written, but obviously that one is not in there. <laughs> he answered the donkey, because he's obviously talked to a donkey. I don't know. You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. 
The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it hadn't turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with these men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. All right, did you notice three times Balaam and his donkey have an episode, right? Three confrontations. And as I said, it's deliberately funny, humorous. And there's a play on the ideas of seeing and speaking. Did you notice that? Remember, Balaam couldn't see, but he's the seer. And he couldn't see what a dumb donkey could see. And God also opened the donkey's mouth. So the speaking donkey was able to reason with Balaam, even though he's the guy hired to speak. Yeah, there's this deliberate irony and humor. Balaam really is the dumb criminal, right? The list of top 10 dumb criminals. Here we are, Balaam number one. He can't even cut a break from his donkey. Now, the consequence of all of this is, as I said, um, God's instructions, which we saw at the end of our reading, 22 verse 20 earlier. Well, that's reinforced, isn't it? You can go with them, but only speak what I tell you to speak. Now, see, this time Balaam got the message. And so the next few verses we won't read. Balaam has his third meeting, this time with King Balak, finally face to face. And he confirms verbally that he is only to speak what God puts in his mouth. And now the scene is set for, uh, for, for uh, now the stage is set for scene number three. Okay, and that's chapters 23 to 24. Chapters 23 and 24, we won't actually have time to read uh, most of it because they're very long verses, so let me summarize. Essentially, remember, um, Balak wanted Balaam to utter curses about the people. But instead, we've got three times, three oracles, there's that number again, three, and they become not curses, but blessings. Now, the third one, chapter 24, is the longest and has extended bits to it. So each time Balak says, curse the people, Balaam ends up uttering an oracle, a message from God that actually does the opposite and blesses them. So let me summarize for you uh, the kind of theme of blessing and what he blesses them with. So it's on the screen, um, just so you know, and read it yourself uh, sometime afterwards if you want. But blessing number one, instead of cursing, he blesses them. He says, look, these people are and will continue to be numerous. And in fact, they'll be the envy of the nations. Definitely not what Balak wanted. Blessing number two, he keeps going. And it's better than even number one. This people, well, they have the Lord as their king. And so they will actually conquer the nations like a devouring lion. Not only are they like an ox now that licks up grass, they're going to be like a lion that rips up prey. Okay? Even stronger, even more mighty, even more terrifying. And the blessing number three really caps it. These people are abundantly blessed. Okay? That's really blessing number three. There's so much about how blessed they are. And they will conquer the nations, again, like a lion. And in fact, not just presently, but their future, in the distant future, and we'll look at that later on, is going to be even more amazing. And the point really is, Balak, that king who tried to cheat by getting you know, a head start with the cursing, well, his plan is completely turned on its head. He wanted Balaam to curse. Instead, he blesses the people that he was supposed to curse. And you get how exasperated, how frustrated poor King Balak is. Right? He really is the dumb criminal now in these chapters. 
He can't cut a break even from Balaam. Um, verse 11 of chapter 23, he goes, uh, this is after the first blessing. Balak says to Balaam, what, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but to bless him. And then after the second blessing, um, Balak says, look, just shut up and don't say anything positive or negative because it's obviously not going well for me. All right, he's completely exasperated. After the third blessing, Balak doesn't even say anything at all. Okay, there we have it. That's essentially the story. We covered a lot of ground, so let's take a step back. And my second point, let's have a look at the message of this, this elaborate, interesting, funny, humorous story. So what's the message? Firstly, the enemy. It is humorous, isn't it? Of how God shows Balak and Balaam to be dumb criminals. But I need you to know that the real-life context wouldn't have been so funny. Uh, Balak was a real king, and he had a real army. Balaam, as I said, was a real person, and famously was someone who was known to be very good at what he did, accessing the spiritual forces of evil to do real damage. God's people, Israel, they were about to enter a land, not just with people like Balak and Balaam, but a land with lots of other nations, with fortified cities, cities with real kings, kings with real armies and real walls. These were all people opposed to them. These were real enemies. That's really interesting because there's actually a parallel here between um, what's happening here, especially Balak, the, the evil king of Moab, with the big enemy of God's people back in Exodus. You remember the big enemy of God's people, Pharaoh? And, and you see the parallels because both Pharaoh and Balak try to do something to God's people because first they notice how many there were. Remember, Pharaoh was like, there's so many of them. We've got to do something about that. We've got to control this population, otherwise they'll take over our land. That's exactly what happens with Balak. And Pharaoh, like Balak, also tries on three occasions to plot against the people of God. Pharaoh does these three things, right? The people are multiplying, so he firstly puts them under heavier slavery. Remember that. Gets them to build and then doesn't give them materials to build with. And then that doesn't work, so he decides, I'm going to get the Hebrew midwives, when they're delivering the Hebrew children, to kill every baby boy. Uh, that doesn't work out either. So his third plot was, you know what? Anytime you have a baby boy, chuck him in the Nile and drown them. So Pharaoh, the enemy of God back in Exodus, did what Balak is trying to do now. We've got two terrible enemies, and really they're a symbol of all the enemies against God and His plan, trying to destroy His people. Now, why I'm mentioning the enemy part is because here's, here it is. like The New Testament, where we are now, after Jesus, the New Testament say that God's people... Followers of Jesus today, we still have a terrible enemy. We do. And it's not North Korea. And it's not Russia. In fact, behind every earthly enemy, the Bible says, and even back then, behind every earthly enemy stands a terrible spiritual enemy. As I said before, there's God and there's also the enemy Satan, the devil. Ephesians chapter 6 says that our battle is not against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, some of us know this and feel this acutely. I gather that most of us probably don't. But regardless of whether you know it and feel it or not, the Bible says and Jesus says that there is an enemy, this spiritual enemy, and he is working 
against all of God's people. So if you've got the name of Jesus because you're a follower of him, you're a marked person. Satan is out to get you. The enemy of God is out to get you and he will do everything he can to steal, to destroy, to corrupt all the good things that God has put in our lives. The enemy is real. But, and this is why we read chapters like Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Like there is in Numbers, the enemy is real, but look what God does to the enemy. See, Numbers reminds us, and it does in a pretty funny way, that though the enemy is real, and from one perspective, scary, but if you have eyes to see, and sometimes God needs to open our eyes so that like Balaam, you can finally see the angel. If you have eyes to see, you'll see that God will always win, no matter what. You see, the the twist in the tail that happens again and again, at every turn, everything that the enemy is trying to do, Balak is trying to do, God manages to turn it into a victory. See, why is it that there's that episode with Balaam and his donkey and the talking donkey? I mean, it's really funny, it's really interesting, but remember, it's just to reinforce the same point that he got to earlier on that he's not to do or say anything except what God tells him. So why this whole thing with Balaam and the donkey? Well, I think it's there to remind us of something. Remember, Balaam was known as a famous magician, practicer of the dark arts, Lord Voldemort of his day. But through this donkey episode, what you actually get to see is that Balaam is the donkey. Because everything that we find out about the donkey in that episode with Balaam, we actually see is Balaam. How do I know? Well, Balaam and the donkey, remember, what happens with Balaam and the donkey is exactly what happens later on with Balak and Balaam. You got that? Balaam and his donkey, Balak, King Balak, and Balaam. Balaam can't get his donkey to obey him. Balak can't get Balaam to obey him. So what does that mean? Balaam is the... I can't use the word ass, but I really want to. Yeah, Balaam is the donkey, all right? No matter how scary this guy is, no matter how well-known he is, he is the donkey. He can only say and do what God tells him to. And so even though I think at, at points Balaam seems like a pretty decent guy in these chapters, I don't know if, if you've noticed that, that he seems to follow God. He's not really out-and-out out evil here. He ends up doing what God tells him to do. God even reveals stuff to him, gives him his spirit so he can prophesy. He seems like a pretty decent guy, But as I said before, if you look at the whole Bible and the number of times it mentions Balaam, and it's quite a few times, Balaam never comes off good. He really is the Lord Voldemort of his time. He's a a bad, bad guy. Firstly, he's not a worshiper of Yahweh, the, the Lord. He's a diviner, a magician. He practices the dark arts, as I said. And these are things that are very strictly forbidden by God. So someone who practices divination and stuff already, as far as God's perspective and the worldview of the Bible is already a bad, bad person. And he's not mentioned directly, but next chapter, which we'll probably look at next week, he actually leads Israel astray. So he's not over. And then when he is killed in Israel's conquest, finally he gets killed, his ending's not good. When they mention Balaam, as I said, even in the Old Testament, it's not good. He's got a bad mark against his name. But But the point of these chapters is even this bad, bad man with supposed magical, dark arts power. Well, he's nothing more than a dumb beast. Right? Or dumb, I can't say the word. Who is used by God to achieve God's purposes. That's the whole point. That God 
who can use a donkey to talk can also use a pagan prophet. It's just like that. So easy for God. And it's all the more funny because God does that. All right, so as I said, there's a twist, right? Balak, King Balak, his plans are completely turned on his head. And again, that's just like Pharaoh. You remember, Pharaoh, like Balak, there's that parallel. Pharaoh wanted to get rid of God's people, and he does three things. Every single one that he does ends up multiplying his problems. He thinks, oh, I'll get the midwives to kill the baby boys. Not only do the midwives not kill the baby boys, God gives the midwives children of their own, and so there's more kids. He thinks we're going to drown the baby boys in the Nile, so he says, you know, if you find a baby boy that's been born, throw him in the Nile. What, what does Moses' parents do? Throws him in the Nile. Keeps him alive, though. He ends up, Moses ends up in the very court of the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh raises up the future savior of God's people without knowing it, okay? Everything that Pharaoh does, like Balak, gets turned on its head. Now, you need to know that the church in Australia, and probably in the Western world, is under pressure, isn't it? Right? Even as we are here meeting freely, increasingly, out there in the media particularly, Christians aren't just tolerated. We're increasingly in the media ridiculed. And you might have noticed this is something that's happened more recently, probably only really strongly in the last five or six years. And so there's a columnist, uh, author, who used to be a rugby um, player. His name is Peter Fitzsimons. And I think he represents... Lots of people. But every time he writes about Christianity in the Sydney Morning Herald, it's always negative. And I'll just read out a segment of what he wrote. So if you're a Christian, this is what he thinks of you. Christians believe, writes Peter Fitzsimons, that a cosmic Jewish zombie who is his own father can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and drink his blood while telepathically telling him that you can accept him as your master so that he can remove an evil force from your soul which is present in all humanity because a woman made out of one rib bone and a mound of dirt was tricked into eating fruit from a magical tree by a talking snake. He doesn't think much of Christians, does he? But you see, it's not just Peter. It's the people you work with, the people you study with, the people you live with, increasingly more and more so. The attitude of Australians and people in the West is anti-Christian. And I don't know how that makes you feel. I don't know how that makes you feel as you think maybe some of our freedoms will get eroded. Maybe we'll lose some of our freedoms to worship freely or to speak freely about the things we're convicted of. It's very easy to get nervous, isn't it? But don't forget, I think Numbers reminds us, no matter what happens, God will win. No matter how terrible the enemy, no matter how strong they are, no matter how powerful they seem at this point, God will win. I always think of what happened in China during the darkest years of communism. As Christianity was driven out and all Westerners were ejected and missionaries were gone, they thought that the church in China would die out. Instead, during those decades, the church in China exploded. The best thing for the growth of Christianity in China was communism. God is able to turn a defeat into a victory. So that's the twist. The final message is obviously that God is determined to what? To bless. Now Balak, when he says to Balaam in verse 6 of chapter 22, whoever you curse is curse, whoever you bless is blessed, that's deliberately making us remember what God's word is. You see, God, back in Genesis chapter 12, when he was making promises to make Israel his people, was just speaking to Israel's great-granddaddy then, Abraham. 
And this is what God said. Look at the uh, verses on the overhead. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see the irony of Balak's words as he says to Balaam, I know that whomever you you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. Right? Balak didn't know that he was running up against the God who had said that. That God was determined already to bless. And in fact, if you bless God's people, you will be blessed. And if you try to curse God's people, you're going to be cursed. And this is why Balak's plan was doomed to fail, because God had already promised. And God's promises are rock solid. And if He's determined to bless you, nothing can ever stand in that way. And really, that takes us to us. That God ultimately wants to bless His people, His people today, followers of Jesus today. And He does it through Jesus, the Messiah, my final point. As I said, that third oracle, the third blessing, will take us into the future. Turn with me to chapter 24, verses 17 to 19. And we're just going to look at this little snippet. Because as Balaam utters his final blessing, he looks out into the distant future. And verse 17 of chapter 24, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. Jacob is another word for Israel. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Now, in a few hundred years' time, that's fulfilled in history with King David. So David, the great Israelite king, actually does subdue Moab and Edom and all these other nations. And he is the star and the scepter and the ruler. But we know also that in the Bible, every time a prophecy of David comes, it's actually ultimately pointing us to David's greatest son, the Messiah, Jesus. And so how God is going to ultimately guarantee victory over the enemy is through Jesus. And it's not Moab the enemy, because Moab's come and go. But as I said, the ultimate enemy is who? It's Satan. And he stands as the enemy behind every enemy of God's people throughout history and in the future. And Jesus is the ultimate victory of God over Satan. And you think about that victory because there's patterns in numbers that we see there. Remember, it's all about the twist. It's all about the, the, the clutching victory out of defeat. Right? Satan thought that by getting the Jewish leaders and the Romans together... And nailing Jesus to the cross, he thought that that was how he would win. You got the Messiah crucified, I've got it. But we know, don't we? The greatest twist of all is that actually it was on the cross that Satan lost. Isn't that wonderful? That he thought he was victorious, he thought he was cursing the people of God, but on the cross we've got the blessing of God. Because as Jesus died there willingly and gladly, As Kenzie so wonderfully put it, the power of sin was broken 
And everything that Satan has against God's people is broken. And Jesus takes our punishment in our place and pays it all. And Satan has nothing against us. And then three days later, he rises again. And even death is defeated. And the way of eternal life is open forever. Satan must have been hitting himself because he put Jesus in the place of victory. And the New Testament, of course, tells us that it's in Jesus that every promise of God, including the one to Abraham, every promise to bless is found because of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says that God, our Father, has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every single spiritual blessing in Jesus. In other words, everything worth having in life, you already have in Jesus, if you're a follower of Him. And it lists some of them. Like the forgiveness of sins, no matter what you've done, God is able to wipe it clean. He's given you eternal life and it's assured. He's made you His sons and daughters. You're adopted. And His own Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, actually comes and lives inside of you to give you joy and peace and power. Every spiritual blessing, everything worth having, you already have. Being blessed means that you have God's favor. You have His love. No matter what, God not only loves you, He likes you as well. That's what being blessed means. Romans chapter 8 tells us nothing in all creation, height nor depth, present nor future, nothing can separate you from that love, nothing at all. Now, as I said, Satan was soundly defeated on the cross, and he cannot take that away from you. If you're a follower of Jesus, he can never take away your spiritual blessing. You've got it in the bank. It's untouchable. Because every curse he wants to throw at the people of God, Jesus took on himself and instead turns it into a blessing. Satan has got no real power over you. You are blessed. So what's Satan's strategy then? And why, why does the New Testament still tell us to watch out for Satan, even though he's been defeated? Well, here's Satan's strategy, and you need to know this. Satan's strategy is not that he can take away our blessing. But Satan's strategy is he can make us think that we're not blessed. You got that? Satan's main power is the power of deception. It's to lie to you and get you to believe false things that are not true. He can't rob you of your blessing, but he can rob you of your assurance and your confidence that you are blessed. In other words, he can make you live like a beggar when actually you are blessed. A friend of mine visited South Africa just after apartheid finished. Apartheid South Africa for decades, whites and blacks unequally separated in society. Blacks were subjugated. Whites had all the power. And then in 94, apartheid ended and Nelson Mandela was the first black president. And things changed almost overnight for blacks in South Africa. What was interesting was my friend went to South Africa just after that. But he was shocked because as he walked the streets of South Africa, as he interacted with the black South Africans, they kept calling him and everyone else who wasn't black, boss. Thank you, boss. Yes, boss. Here, boss. Okay, boss. There's a remnant from their apartheid era that even though they were free now and equal, they still carried around with them the chains of calling people boss who weren't their boss. And that's a tragedy, isn't it? When you're free, but you still live as though you're slaves. And that's what Satan tries to do. He can't take away your blessing, but he can deceive you in thinking that you are a beggar. 
And so you think about how that works. I mean, every time that you are tempted to sin, it's actually working. Satan is working on that principle, isn't it? Making you feel like you lack, rather than make you understand and hold on to all that you have. You know, you think about what happened in the Garden of Eden, when he says to the man and the woman who had everything, everything, and he says, oh, but you don't have that. And God doesn't want you to have that, because God doesn't want you to have it all. And that was the ultimate deception, wasn't it? And so they took the fruit and sinned. And isn't the same for us? Um, when we're deceived so that we lust or we're greedy or we conflict and have anger, it's often working on the principle that we don't have when actually we do have. And here's the other thing. After you sin, and we do sin, don't we? Satan doesn't stop deceiving you. And he wants us to think, well, now that you've sinned, God doesn't love you anymore. He's not on your side. You've lost all that blessing. And so what, what happens after you sin? Rather than come to God boldly and freely and doing confession like we do every single week, you don't feel like confessing. You're too ashamed to come to God and so you don't. You see how it works? And Satan does that in our prayer lives too. He undermines our confidence that God is for us, that God actually hears us. And because of that, our prayers are powerful. And because he deceives us, well, what do we do instead? We don't, we don't really pray, do we? When we do pray, it's not with a lot of confidence and faith. We don't really pray as precious sons and daughters of the King of Kings who wants to hear us and wants to answer our prayers. Instead, we come, we don't come as blessed. And instead, we think of ourselves as beggars. Do you see what, what would happen today? What would happen today if God could open our eyes so that we could actually see the reality and strip away this deception and actually see that that's what Satan is doing? But it's really easy to unmask that. That actually God is on your side if you are a child of God. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you are actually blessed. You have it all. You have His favor. And even in suffering, then nothing can separate you from God's love for you. Like what if we actually lived as blessed instead of beggars? Because if we did, then maybe we would also allow that blessing to overflow and actually be a blessing to the people around us. Satan would hate that. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that even as we realize how often we forget how blessed we are because of Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we would repent of that. That you, who has already defeated Satan once and for all, might help us live every single day as people who are genuinely blessed because of Jesus and live in that confidence. And Father, I also pray for those who do not yet know you in a personal way and really just today can come and grab hold of the blessings that is for them if they trust in Jesus. I pray that today would be a day that people do that as well. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your victory in Him. And thank you that because of Jesus alone, we have hope. Amen.